Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I am managing. Managing infective endocarditis. So this is part two of our endocarditis series i don't know what i'm calling this it's a two-parter yeah a double bill i did not feel that i could contain all that you need to know about endocarditis in one episode or certainly within one that's less than an hour i still don't feel that i have my head around this even now um so what are we going to talk about today today we're going to talk about the parts of infective endocarditis that we didn't talk about on the first part and that was around how do you assess the severity of infective endocarditis, a little bit about the indications for surgery, and then the treatment. And within that, some discussion on treatment principles, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, and Mm. treatment based on different organisms, and also some innovations in the treatment of infective endocarditis. Yeah. Why don't you start us off with what are the prognostic indicators that would indicate a bad outcome in an endocarditis patient? Sure. When you think of the patient characteristics, older age, uh, other things that lead to poor outcomes is prosthetic valve infective endocarditis. Because it's not your own tissue, then biofilm formation could be more difficult to, to deal with. And also the organism's Essentially, because you've got this prosthetic valve, you maybe have more healthcare exposures, you may get more resistant organisms, things like coagulase negative stuff. Uh, other patient characteristics, uh, so diabetes mellitus, frailty, immune suppression. Moving beyond the patient characteristics, so the clinical complications, so in any patient of infective endocarditis, if they go on to develop heart failure, if they develop renal failure, if they have moderate or larger areas of ischemic stroke or brain hemorrhage, or finally, if they are presenting in septic shock. And organism-wise, so comparing things to streptococci, Staphylococcus aureus has a worse outcome. Fungal infective endocarditis has a worse outcome. And the non-HASIC gram-negative bacilli, they have a worse outcome. Uh, and then finally, echocardiographic findings. So if there's periannular complications, um, if there's severe left-sided valve regurgitation, or there's a reduced or a low left ventricular ejection fraction, uh, so sort of tying back into that heart failure clinical complication. If there's uh, signs of pulmonary hypertension or large vegetations, if there's a prosthetic valve and a severe prosthetic valve dysfunction, or if there's premature mitral valve closure other signs of elevated diastolic pressure so echocardiographic findings associated with worse valve destruction specific bugs specific complications and older frailer more diabetic patients these are all patients that would that would do badly i guess we should say a little bit about sort of indications for now surgery now it's not the job of the infectious disease physician or microbiologist to tell the surgeons when they're going to operate. But these are the indications in which you would maybe want to try and push for uh, a surgical procedure if it wasn't already in the mind uh, of the surgeon or the endocarditis team that are taking care of them. The uh, only 
cardiological emergency is heart failure with uh, aortic or mitral native or prosthetic valve endocarditis with severe re- acute regurgitation, obstruction, or fistula causing refractory pulmonary edema or cardiogenic shock. That is phrasing as taken directly from the European Society of Cardiology guidelines for the management of endocarditis. If you have heart failure because of valvular abnormalities not meeting that criteria, that's an urgent uh, indication. Uncontrolled infection. Uh, So that could be either uh, the patient has failed to defervesce within about seven to 10 days of starting antimicrobials, or they have specific organisms like, again, fungi, all need to have uh, valvular surgery to uh, get rid of the valvular lesion. That's just too much bug for the antimicrobial to kill. Persisting blood culture positivity, obviously, that's why we do clearest cultures uh, at all. And if you've got a prosthetic valve that's infected with either staphylococci or non-Hasset gram negatives, again, that would be an indication for surgery. And then the last one is if the patient is having persistent emboli, then again, that would be uh, an indication to uh, to push for surgery so that you can get all of that vegetation burden removed. It's a bit like draining an abscess. You've got a load of bugs and, and pus and fibrinous material, and you can try and kind of eat away at it over the next few weeks with antimicrobials and, and the patient's own point blood cells, or you can just scoop it out uh, with the uh, with a surgeon's knife. I think this, these decisions are really tricky, particularly because the patient groups are often more elderly and more yeah. comorbid. So, doing the surgery in itself is, you know, open heart surgery is is high risk. So, you know, is the risk of potentially getting a large stroke uh, mm. outweighed by the surgery? You know, obviously, there's a risk of stroke from uh, cardiothoracic surgery. So that balance of risk is. Um, it's really tough, and there's, there's an MDT approach. Yeah, but that, that MDT approach, that endocarditis team approach, the ESC guidelines refer to it, that, that's the right way. And in that, the infection specialist plays a part, but it's not the main part. These patients are not our patients. We're not the primary team. We are giving advice on antimicrobials, and we might try and give a push for certain things like surgery. But, you know, surgeons are experts at surgery. And they are the ones that know when to perform it and when not to perform it. And it's got risks, big risks, that they're trained to perform the assessment of. It's, but it's important to kind of realise that that decision to operate is not a small decision. Endocarditis is not, endocarditis surgery, that is, is not easy uh, or quick. And very often after the decision has been made to cut, the patient is going down a pathway where they will end up with a prosthetic valve, which is just more metal or plastic or whatever they make them out of these days in the body that could get infected again. So that's the indications for surgery. So we're now moving into the meat of the matter from our perspective, um, which is the, the treatment itself. And so it's maybe worth our resident clinical pharmacologists talking talking to some of the treatment principles. Oh, you're leaving this to me, are you? (laughs) All right, fine. Uh, Yeah, okay, so the thing you need to know about endocarditis is that these vegetations that you find on the heart valves, they are complex. They are 
full of bugs that are in various stages of growth. So some are growing and some aren't growing. And it is very difficult for antibiotics to get into the deep part uh, of those vegetations. They'll sterilize the outside just fine, uh, but getting into them is, is difficult. And so that means that your bacterial density has an effect for how your antimicrobials are going to work. So the first principle you need to know about is something called the inoculum effect. The inoculum effect is the phenomenon where higher bacterial densities reduces the susceptibility of the colony to an antibiotic. You could think that the more bugs are present and you, know, you, you hit them with a load of antibiotic, the more will die. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, from in vivo modeling for, for Staph aureus, we know that cell wall agents are more effective with inoculum do doses uh, of 10 to the 6 per gram of tissue. That's a million bugs per gram of tissue compared to 10 to the 8 or to 10 to the 11 organisms per gram of tissue. And we think that's probably because of two reasons. One is that more organisms are in the stationary growth phase. They're not trying to grow. They're not trying to expand their cell wall. So cell wall agents will be less effective against them. But the other is because you've got so many bugs in the, in the mix, some are going to be a little bit more resistant than others because of various different mechanisms. And they are more likely to be selected out when you use uh, an antimicrobial agent. This phenomenon is less seen with quinolones and aminoglycosides, but as you're about to find out, cell wall agents form the backbone of treatment for endocarditis because most endocarditis is caused by gram-positive organisms that are susceptible to uh, beta-lactams and vancomycin. Uh, incidentally, this is part of the reason that right-sided endocarditis is easier, in quotes, to treat than left-sided endocarditis is because the bacterial densities overall are, are lower. Second thing you need to realize is that bactericidality matters in this situation. So because you've got a bunch of bugs that are growing in what is essentially a protected site, having antibiotics that actually kill the bug as opposed to just stop it growing are important because a bunch of them are trying to grow. They're, they're contact inhibited because they're packed in with all their buddies. And so bactericidal antimicrobials like daptomycin, beta-lactams, and vancomycin are considered to be better overall, and they will clear areas of higher bacterial density, and they will work without the immune system coming in and doing the actual killing. And the last thing is that the, these vegetations you know, uh, require long durations of antimicrobial therapy, so the minimum you will treat them with is two weeks. That's usually if you're using a cell wall agent plus gentamicin. Usually they require four to six weeks depending on the organism, and that's to allow the antibiotic or antibiotics to penetrate completely into the vegetation to allow clearance. So that's some principles. We talked in the ID its guide to penicillins a little bit about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. These are very important in the management of infective endocarditis. Now, in terms of when we look at beta-lactam antibiotics or cell wall agents and how we can predict if they're going to work or not, 
they work based on the time that you have a dose of the drug at the site where the organism is, which is over the minimum inhibitory concentration. And uh, for beta-lactams, if we talk about them being bactericidal, which is what we're aiming for, we need them to be above the MIC for at least 70% of the time. And that's based on on um, models, um, animal models. Whereas if they're over the MIC for only 40%, so 40 to 70% potentially, they're only going to be bacteriostatic, which is a problem. Now, that's not usually a problem, so saying something like cellulitis. It doesn't really matter because your immune system is going to get there and kill the bacteria. You're just sort of holding the fort a little bit. Hmm. But here, you need it to be bactericidal. So how do you how do you move that from... How do you make it that there's more time over the MIC? Well, there's two ways. You can either bump up your doses as much as you can, but there's limitations on how high dose you can give uh, due to tolerability uh, and infusion time and infusion volumes and so on. Or you can change your frequency of administration. So this is essentially why in infective endocarditis, often you'll be giving a beta-lactam antibiotic more frequently than you would do for other indications. So penicillins you might give every four hours rather than every six hours. And if you imagine a graph uh, of the concentration of your antibiotic in the blood against time on the x-axis, you, you can imagine that if you're giving something more frequently, then you're going you're gonna to keep that line bobbing around higher than the, the MIC, which should be a sort of straight line along the, along the graph, than if you're giving higher doses less frequently. Um, so that's one type of antibiotics where we're, we're looking at time over MIC. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So the antibiotics that really matters about time, uh, where the pharmacodynamic measure of bacterial kill is time over MIC, are the beta-lactams, linezolid, and clindamycin. And for other antibiotics, what really matters is the maximum concentration that you you reach. At, again, at the site of, uh, of action of the antibiotic. Now, once you get over about two times the MIC with beta-latam, say, you don't get any additional killing. But that is not the case with aminoglycosides like gentamicin, say, or daptamicin, or the quinolones. Those are the big three that have concentration-dependent killing. There it does matter because the more molecules of antibiotic that are touching the organism the more strong their effect is. So just taking gentamicin as an example, it irreversibly binds the ribosomal subunit 30S of bacteria. So the more gentamicin molecules there are in the organism, the more ribosomal subunits are completely taken out of action and the better your chances of killing that bug in particular are. Uh, so their measure of effectiveness is... Cmax. Uh, Cmax is maximal concentration of the antibiotic, usually expressed as a proportion uh, or a multi multiplication of the MIC. So Cmax over MIC ratio. A ratio of greater than 10, 8 to 10 is considered to be ideal. Uh, and then the last group is, it's a bit more difficult to understand. So their measure of effectiveness is 
AUC, the area under the curve, that's the uh, concentration uh, over time uh, distribution uh, of the antibiotic. AUC over a 24-hour period divided by the MIC ratio. This is much easier to uh, understand on in graph form, but essentially it's the proportion of the AUC, which is over the MIC. So it's that, that amount of antibiotic that is administered that's, that's over the MIC. Yeah, so AUC over 21st divided by MIC. So that gives you a proportion of the AUC that's over the MIC. The classic one for this is, is glycopeptides. It's vancomycin and, uh, and cycloplanin. And sorry to say that there's been a movement over the past few years to try and get people to actually do their vancomycin calculations by working out the AUC over MIC, which is a pretty complex calculation to do. As you know, at the moment we do uh, trough levels just to make sure that you 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 hit, you know, either ten to fifteen for mild infections or fifteen to twenty. And uh, the reason is that the an AUC over MIC ratio of about four hundred is improved with better outcomes. Um, there have been a couple of trials uh, showing that. Uh, now that roughly equivalents to a trough level of greater than fifteen. And so that's why 15 to 20 is used as the cutoff for severe infections. And actually the European uh, guidance uh, recommends uh, greater than 20 for, say, staphylococcal uh, infections. Uh, so those are the three ways that we can measure uh, effectiveness of antibiotics. Time over MIC for beta-lactams, linezolid, and clindamycin. Cmax for aminoglycosides, daptomycin, and the quinolones. And then AUC over MIC for glycopeptides. But for simplicity, uh, we uh, look at the trough level and sort of assume that that roughly equilibrates to an AUC over MIC of over 400 if the trough is 15 or higher. Hmm. The last thing I should say before we move into the actual recommendations is when do we time our treatment from? You know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. Is it from the first day that we give antibiotics or is it the first negative blood culture is it the time that the valve gets removed if the valve does get removed the aha guidance on endocarditis would suggest that if you have culture positive endocarditis because of course there's culture negative if you then get a negative culture your timing should be from then uh, and if you have a valve resection and it's culture negative, you can keep it at that. But if you have valve resection and you're able to grow bug, that would imply incomplete sterilization and you should kind of restart the clock, uh, so to speak, from then. I, I know that actually locally the decision is left with the uh, surgeon who's performing the operation uh, to determine when the, if, the, if the clock restarts. I don't know if you've got an opinion on it, Cal. It's difficult because... You've grown the organism in the piece of tissue, but that piece of tissue is no longer in the patient. So yeah. does it matter? I guess all I could say is that, you know, if you've got two patients that are exactly the same in every way, but one of them, you reset the valve and they can grow the organism and the other, you reset the valve and you cannot. And then 
the person who you can still grow the organism is there's potentially something there that means that either you know drugs haven't been the right level or you know something's different and that that person's in a worse situation so extending their antibiotics might be the right thing to do Mm. Um, as with all these treatments you know it's a very long treatment duration that comes with risks but at the same time the the consequences of recurrence particularly if they've had a valve replacement and then they've got a prosthetic valve are catastrophic so you really want to get it right so i think most people err on the side of caution when it comes to duration and will treat for you know if there's any any reason that you that makes you more concerned about recurrence or treatment failure and then you will you will extend yeah i agree and just just to throw this into the mix there are some experts that would say that if you excise what turns out to be a sterile valve maybe you can actually just give antimicrobials for two weeks post-op and stop yeah Um, but that's not universally accepted so talking through treatment so you mentioned aha earlier on um so there's there's three main guidelines what you just spell out for people what those stand for so the main guideline that we that we use locally is is uh, is the BSAC guideline, the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy guideline. That came out in 2012. It's a bit long in the tooth now. It's kind of used as our our default because it's got the antimicrobials that we recognise and, and know and love, and the uh, guidance is sort of set out by organism, which makes it a lot easier. And then the other two guidances, both of which were issued in 2015, so again, they're getting a little bit old now, uh, are ESC, European Society of Cardiology, uh, and AHA, American Heart Association. Those are the three big guidelines that uh, have recommendations that you could look at for guidance on how to Uh, how to treat endocarditis. I have to say that the ESC guidance is a lot easier to read, mostly because it's in colour and it has nice tables. Uh, And the antimicrobial recommendations are a bit weird, and we're going to come on to it, but the extra stuff around about it, you know, including indications for surgery and what to do with neurological complications of endocarditis, which we aren't going to cover, and an OPAT, which we're going to mention, I think they're very well laid out. And I think it's quite e- it's quite an easy read, even though it's 50 pages long. Uh, to that end, the BSAC is only 21 pages long, and it's much easier. You can get through it in an afternoon, no problem. So we've got in these guidelines very comprehensive tables of it's antimicrobial for this long for this organism mm-hmm. and we don't want to just read out the type the guideline to you although maybe if someone emails and requests that we could do it um <laughs> 50 pages you know audiobook uh so jay maybe you can outline more of an, an approach yeah so the, this this depends if you want to just kind of look at the bsat guidance and say that's the end of it uh, or if you want to go a little bit deeper and and see what the other guidelines are recommending, um, it's fairly easy to interpret what the Americans and the Europeans are doing uh, into the UK antibiotic milieu. So, for example, uh, the Europeans, the their main aminoglycoside is gentamicin, but they also recommend nettlemycin, and that's because gent's not available in some countries, and nettlemycin is available in those. Uh, similarly. The Americans, they don't have access to flucloxacillin. We've stated that before that for historical reasons, some places have cloxacillin instead or oxacillin, 
And so too in the European guidelines, they have both fluclox and uh, oxacillin. And so they they make a recommendation for both at the same dose, as a matter of fact. These drugs are very similar to each other. You just have to kind of be mindful uh, of that. There, There are a few differences. Amoxicillin, for example, in the European guidance is dosed at 200 milligrams per kilogram per day. So for me, that would be 20 grams a day. I'm about 100 kilos. And that's four grams of amoxicillin five times a day. So this is, I don't know how you feel about that, Cal. That is to me a very high dose. Yeah, you... If you if you said to me, let's give two grams of amoxicillin every six hours or four times a day, you know that would be your 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 treatment for say a list, suspected listeria meningoencephalitis, and that is a, a deliberately high dose to get into the CNS. So that is a mm. huge dose. You know, presumably they must think that everyone in the UK is using homeopathic doses of amoxicillin for all of their. Uh, cases. And it's strange because um, they recommend that, but their penicillin recommendations, you know, for, for say streptococcal endocarditis, they're exactly the same. And their keftriaxone dosing is exactly the same too. And then when it comes to amoxicillin, they're using these huge weight-based dosing uh, regimens. I don't see why practice would vary so much uh, in Europe compared to the UK, we're right next to each other and our antimicrobial milieu is very similar. And yet for this one drug, we've got, you know, very different approaches in in terms of, you know, using it as an antimicrobial. Mm. The other thing, the other big difference, uh, and this is true of the American guidelines as well, they advocate once a day gentamicin as a, as a bit of a primer. Gentamicin dosing a standard, you know, as per the Hartford nomogram and what people are used to using in in hospital is between five to seven milligrams per kilogram per day. So in in a lot of Scotland, we use five mg per kg per day. Locally, at least, there doesn't seem to be any difference in efficacy between using five and seven milligrams per kilogram per day. And so that's what we've been doing for for many years now. In the uh, endocarditis guidance uh, for, you know, use in combination with, you know, for say a strep, endocarditis, the Americans and the Europeans are advising three milligrams per kilogram uh, of gentamicin delivered one time per day. This differs quite a lot from the BSAC guidance, where we're still advocating what's called synergistic gentamicin, which is one milligram per kilogram every 12 hours. So that would be a total 24-hour dose of two megs per keg. And the the thing that we know about synergistic gent is that it's um, very difficult to give over a long period of time, even even a, a shorter period as two weeks, people very often discontinue it early. People have difficulty getting the a trough and a peak off all the patient every couple of doses. And it's in general, it's, it's kind of poorly tolerated. People don't understand how to use it as well because the gentamicin that they use every day is the five milligrams per kilogram once a day one. That's what they're comfortable with. And so it's interesting that not only the Americans, but also the Europeans have decided, actually, we're not going to bother with synergistic dose gentamicin, the evidence for which is not particularly robust. And instead, we're just going to do once a day dosing, but at this kind of lower uh, dose than what you would call standard. I mean, if you're thinking, if you're going from seven 
you know, mix per cake per day as per the Hartford down to three, that's that's a greater than 50% reduction. And still it's, you know, become standard practice in both Europe and America. And did the, in the guidelines talk to why? They said it was better tolerated. You know, he, here's the thing about synergy for, for gentamicin. Or let me ask you this, Callum. Why would it matter if you're giving it twice a day as opposed to once a day? I can only imagine the idea is to do with the the pharmacokinetics in terms of keeping a steadier state, but that's kind of in contrary to how we know gentamicin works with the Cmax. So yeah, and it's also assuming that you need to have a level of gentamicin above the MIC to get synergistic kill. We're doing troughs and peaks. Remember, you want the trough to be less than one. You want the peak to be between three and five. Well, who says that you're not getting synergistic kill if the gentamicin level is below the MIC for gent? The whole reason that you're giving it is that you're giving it with the beta-lactam, and the beta-lactam is opening up the cell wall and allowing the gentamicin to get in. People don't know how deadly gentamicin is if you do that. People have done in vitro modeling and they've done animal modeling and they've, you know, published their findings and that's all well and good. But the correlation between that and in order to have synergistic kill with gentamicin for gram-positive endocarditis means that you have to keep it above the MIC. That that intuitive leap is not obvious to me. And what is the evidence base for the synergy? Because you said that it was, it wasn't good. Well, as you, as you know full well, Callum, it's embarrassingly ropey. Uh, so there's some uh, trials exploring synergy where uh, there was no evidence of synergy whatsoever. Um, there were some where there was like a, a bit of evidence that it was, you know, the the two were better on their own. Uh, I, I don't know if the split was exactly 50-50. I suspect actually there were, there were maybe more trials arguing for synergy than against, but perhaps I'm just being hopeful. All of this stuff is historical, by the way, because now giving an aminoglycoside with the beta-lactam C is established clinical practice, but the trial data that we're basing all this on is uh, shaky. And in fact, it's something that I want to try and cover in a future podcast episode to just kind of drill down and say, what's the actual evidence base for for this? What are we basing all of this on? But that's a talk for another day. Let's talk about strep. Okay. Remind me, Calum, is strep the commonest cause? The streptococci, the genus, is that the commonest cause of endocarditis? My understanding is that there's debate within the literature between streptococcal infective endocarditis or Staphylococcus aureus, um, mm. which of those two uh, is more common? And if my understanding is that probably overall streptococcal is more common, but I'm not entirely certain now, and I don't think anybody knows for sure. Well, I think for left sided, you might be true. You might be right because um, put the poet trial, which we'll talk about in a bit, it was it was only in left sided endocarditis, and I know that most right sided is is caused by Staph aureus. Um, but there, 50% of the organisms were streptococci. And then it was 25% staphs, a bit less than 25% um, enterococci, and then 5 to 10% everything else, mostly coagulase negative staphs. 
So I, th- I think you're right. So what you know, what can you use for for treating strep? The BSAC guidance just have a table for all streptococci, which I find easier to follow. The Americans, the Europeans sort of divide it into viridan strep or, or mouthy streps and the bovis group, strep pneumo, and then group A and group B, the beta hemolytic streps. They're all separate. Now, all of them, you can sort of use the same kind of stuff. Now, you can use you know, penicillin, keftraxone, and you can give those two things for four to six weeks. Or if you wanted to really shorten things up, and the patient is well, they have a native valve endocarditis and they don't need surgery, you can combine both of those things with gentamicin. Again, this is the, we're going on the BSAC guidance here, and it's the synergist dose one milligram per kilogram every 12 hours. And you can only give that for two weeks. And then the patient's cured and they can go home and they can leave hospital. So you can understand why that might be appealing to an overstretched NHS or your hospital administrator or, you know, someone of that ilk. Or the patient itself. Uh, Yeah, the patient as well. You know, they want to get out of hospital. Hospitals are not nice places. They're dangerous places uh, right now, as everybody is finding out. You can get infections, you can get ill, you can die because of something that you got in hospital. So getting people in and getting people treated and getting people out is a high priority. Those uh, treatments that I mentioned there, they're sort of assuming that you've got highly sensitive to penicillin, uh, that is uh, streptococci. What does that mean? It generally means that you've got a penicillin MIC of less than 0.125. If you have that, then you can use penicillin 1.2 grams six times a day or keftraxone two grams a day. Now, in the US and the European guidance, it's 12 to 18 mega units, which is 1.2 to 1.8 grams. So the dosaging is, is similar. And then let's say that you've got a penicillin intermediate strain. Uh, that would be uh, MIC breakpoints of 0.125 to 0.5. In the US guidance, it actually says 0.12 to 0.18. In the European guidance is 0.25 to 2. So just to bear in mind that there is a discrepancy there in what they call intermediate sensitivity to penicillin. Hmm. You use either vancomycin or penicillin 2.4 mega units or 2.4 grams or keftraxone with the addition of gentamicin. Again, you can use the the gent for two weeks uh, and then the other agent for four uh, except if you're using vancomycin, in which case it would be uh, four weeks for, for both of them. And just to say, for all of these guidelines, if it's a prosthetic valve endocarditis, it's six weeks uh, for all of them, even if you're using double therapy. The uh, US and the European guidance then give separate guidance for strep pneumoniae, endocarditis, and group A strep, and uh, group B, C, uh, F, and G uh, as well, but really it just amounts to using either penicillin, keftraxone, or vancomycin, depending on what's most clinically appropriate. And if it's a beta hemolytic strep that isn't group A, you use gentamicin for the first two weeks. Uh, and that's that. I don't think we need to say anything more about streptococci than that, Cal. Yeah, I think that was that was great. Thanks. So I guess there are other maybe the most common or second most common, so Staphylococcus aureus? 
Yeah. So the, it's actually staphylococci. So it's all staphs. It's not just staph aureus, but the lion's share will be caused by, uh, by staph aureus. And, and what's the big hitter there? Um, or anti-staphylococcal penicillin, so flucloxacillin or uh, oxacillin, cloxacillin. Yeah, so nafcillin or oxacillin are the IV formulations available in the US, so the AHA recommend them. Flucloxacillin or oxacillin, depending on what country you're in, are uh, in the ESC guidance, and so they are recommended there. The dosing is interesting. So the flucloxacillin dosing, uh, again, there's some difference between the BSAC and uh, other guidelines. So if we look at um, our normal use, it's every six hours of two grams. And in the BSAC guidance, uh, if you're over 85 kilograms, then you increase the frequency so that you're giving two grams every four hours or uh, six times a day, a a total dose of 12 grams per day. Uh, Mm. Whereas in the European guidance, you're giving that dose for everybody, regardless of your weight. And the, the US, you, you might be wondering what they use. They use nafcillin and oxacillin, and I, uh, I didn't note down the dosages there. They also um, make a recommendation for kefazolin for the staphylococci uh, as well, which uh, BSAC doesn't do, but kefazolin has a similar action basically to make a spectrum of action to flucloxacillin. And so you could um, understand that they would uh, probably both be uh, effective. So do uh, the Europeans. By the way, the dose is two grams three times a day. Uh, Kefazon is a first-generation kefalosporin, fairly well-tolerated. It can be given three times a day, which is one time a day less than Pluplox. So in some countries, it's favoured as treatment for, say, cellulitis because it's less strain on uh, nursing time uh, and administration and doesn't carry a significant C. diff risk, really. What, what are the other agents that we could use, what are the other regimens that we could use, uh, Calm, for uh, for native valve? Yeah, so particularly if someone's penicillin allergic or there's there's some issue with um, treating them or they've got resistant organism, MRSA, then other options would be vancomycin. I think the BSEC guidance is asking for a trough of 15 to 20 milligrams per litre, but in the uh, Europeans' uh, guidance were... Uh, looking for that trough for 20, which you mentioned earlier on. Another option might be daptomycin. And as you were talking about the the way in which daptomycin works, it's the CMOS, the concentration, the maximum concentration. So you're trying to give really high doses. So uh, when we give daptomycin, it's weight-based and a typical dose might be around six milligrams per kilogram once a day, but we're going up to as much as you can tolerate, which is 10 milligrams per per kilogram it it varies between guidelines exactly the the amount that they're recommending so i I think this is a function of of time because we used to be given you know four five six milligrams per kilogram per day of daptone we we considered six to be quite punchy but because things have moved on and we've kind of realized that we're dealing with a drug that does concentration dependent killing BSAC says 6 mega per kg, AHA says 8, and ESC says 10. So as you go forward in time, the maximum dosage recommendation kind of goes up and up. And and some say that you have to combine it with other agents to try and minimize the chance of resistance developing. Daptomycin has a slightly lower resistance barrier than than other agents. And, Mm -hmm. And some don't. Some say you can just use it on its own. I think our local practice there 
deviates from BSAC because there's that recognition um, of the updated information? I think everyone does. I think, I mean, endocarditis is quite specialised, but I think most people are using higher than you will find in the guidance doses of uh, for daptomycin. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure if BSAC updated their guidance, the their daptomycin recommendation wouldn't stay at six. It would yeah. be higher. Yeah, there's better evidence now. Yeah. Other things that have been got in staff is if there's prosthetic valve infective endocarditis, and then as James said earlier on, your your duration is going to go up to six weeks, and mm. you're going to add in uh, rifampicin comes in here as a biofilm active agent. Well, and and gentamicin too. Yeah. So it becomes quite complicated if you've got these these free drugs. There's a lot of side effects between fluclox, rifampicin, gentamicin, or vancomycin, rifampicin, gentamicin. It, it is quite a toxic regimen, and you have to be really vigilant for the early signs of that when you're treating people. In a way, it, it sort of simplifies it a little bit. You know, you can you give rifampicin to everyone with prosthetic valvuluses, rifampicin to everyone, gentamicin to everyone, and either fluclox, and if you can't do that, vanc, and if you don't want to give vanc or it doesn't work, dapto. That's it. So you've only got three, one decision to make, which is which, what's your primary agent going to be? And the other two decisions have been made for you already. In case you're wondering what the uh, Americans and the, and the Europeans are doing here, they're using oxacillin, RIF, Gent, Vank, RIF, Gent, and the Europeans are doing fluclox, RIF, Gent, Vank, RIF, Gent. In- incidentally, the Americans are still using synergistic dosing here. Hmm. <laughs> That's confusing. Yeah. So they're giving three mg per keg, but over three separate doses. So it's one milligram per kilogram three times a day. Oh, I hope I've read this right. So even within these other guidances, and the Europeans aren't doing that, so there's no consistency. Well, if anybody listening would like to go out and conduct a, a high-quality randomized control trial, you have a blessing. Please do that. <laughs> That'd be really helpful. Thank you. Let's simplify things and take things down a notch and talk about enterococci. Uh, entering enterococci land. So enterococci is simple. You've only got three things things that you could possibly do. This is all empirical, by the way, but you've got penicillin or amoxicillin plus gentamicin, penicillin or amoxicillin plus keftraxone, or vancomycin plus gentamicin. And there are a couple of other ones that you can try, but they're definitely like down the line if, if you can't uh, get the patient on one of these regimens that I've just mentioned. Yeah. Which is actually not that uncommon, given the the rates of vancomycin-resistant intracocci, which are usually intracoccus fecium, which is usually resistant to amoxicillin and penicillin. So mm. it's not unusual to end up having to use something like lanesolid or daptomycin, yeah. even though you know it's not that great for intracocci. Have you treated many um, entofecium endocarditis? I've, I've never treated a case, but I know they're out there. I think I've treated two, and I can remember one very, very markedly, and... It was complicated. It, it was on consult and uh, mm. it, it was a lot of discussion and, and thoughts that went into it. And we came up with this plan. And I think for additional complications, they were on a, they were on an antidepressant. So we couldn't use lanesolid because of the risk of serotonin syndrome. So we had to stop that and get the washout of the drug. It was just one of these cases where, you know, I would ask the next question of the, of the referring team being like, oh, okay, so. 
the antidepressant. Oh yeah, they are. Oh, you know, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the whole day gone. But um, it was it was quite good. It was it was satisfying to be able to. Sometimes I think it's a struggle to ex- explain the complexity of these decisions mm-hmm. uh, to your patients, and it was quite a nice opportunity to be able to go and and talk that through with them. Yeah. But yeah, prosthetic valve infections with vancomycin resistant Enterococcus fecium very very challenging. I should say the the recommendations for lineslid and and daptomycin monotherapy they're they're only mentioned in the AHA guidance and they're certainly not favoured. Um, mm. Their antimicrobial choices of of last resort. I guess we should sort of clarify why amoxin kef. You know, we just. I'm pretty sure in explaining the enterococci, we mentioned that they're intrinsically resistant to cephalosporin. So what's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on? What's going on? Okay, I'll tell you. So the idea is that by amoxicillin binding to some PBPs, the conformation has changed such that cephalosporins can either go in and, and target the same PPPs, or what's more likely is that they're targeting different ones, which ordinarily wouldn't significantly impact on the uh, bacterial cells viability. But if amoxicillin has knocked out uh, some other PPPs, does produce additional kill. And so there's evidence of synergy uh, between amoxicillin and or ampicillin and keftraxone for enterococci. But I mean, all of these really uh, require six weeks of therapy, native or prosthetic. The only exception is that if you've got a native valve and you're on a moxin gent, the Americans say you can use four weeks, the Europeans say four to six. We say four to six as well. I I think when it comes to these kind of more weird organisms, you have to think of a reason not to do six weeks. It's one of these problems when you give a guideline and you have a range of a, 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 a range of durations without a clear thing saying why yeah why is it shorter why is it longer it's yeah if i find myself sometimes recommending treatment durations that are a range and i have to catch myself and say no i'm going to use a definitive number and then review i mean i guess that if you get to four weeks and there's still signs that things haven't settled you you, re- you reassess as with any guideline as with all these things these are empiric guidelines so you're going to base your treatment of the antimicrobial susceptibilities. Uh, so we should t- talk about the HACIC organisms, which we went through in part one of infective endocarditis very briefly. Um, so yeah, the HACIC organisms, um, there's a little bit of discrepancy here between the uh, the guidances. The, the Europeans and the Americans sort of say that you can, your options are CAF, AMOX, or Cipro. All these are gram-negative organisms. Uh, remember, so you need stuff the gram-negative cover. The Europeans note that quite a lot of these organisms can produce a beta-lactamase, and so you need to make sure that it's sensitive to amoxicillin uh, first before you use it. And if you do use it, instantly, the Europeans say you should use synergistic gent with it. So that's maybe less appealing than just putting them on keftraxone and, you know, uh, you could uh, maybe try and get the patient to OPAT or even still you could put them on Cipro 750 BD. Uh, as for what BSAC recommend, they say that we should treat them with a um, 
beta-lactamase stable cephalosporins, that's ceftriaxone and, and ceftazidime and stuff like that, or amoxicillin if the isolate is susceptible and add gentamicin for the first two weeks of therapy. And as an alternative, you can use Cipro, but there's a bit more evidence now that you can use uh, Cipro. And that's, that's quite appealing because you can discharge the patient on tablets uh, and, and monitor them closely. Mm. Um, that's really about all you need to know about HASEX. That's the empirical treatment. Of course, once you get the organism and you grow it and you've got the antibiogram, you would change your uh, prescription based on what you found. And of course, I guess that's two for everything we've mentioned before now. And then the, the last group that we're going to talk about are the non-HASEC GNBs. Now, if you've got a non-HASEC gram-negative that's causing endocarditis, something's gone deadly wrong uh, with the patient. They're immunocompromised or they've got cancer or they've got abnormal valve uh, anatomy or this is an unusually aggressive gram-negative and the patient is in deep trouble. Um, the empirical treatment is kept very simple. Uh, a B-lactam of some description plus gentamicin, or if you can't use gent for whatever reason, you can replace it with a quinolone, or the Europeans recommend Cotrim. Uh, you could use Cotrim if you, for whatever reason, uh, IV therapy was an absolute no-no, uh, but then you would kind of try and recommend a high-dose Cotrimoxazole, so think 1920 milligrams uh, three times a day. But non-HASEC gram-negatives causing endocarditis is thankfully rare. But when it does happen, it's a, it's a real poor prognostic sign. So to your fungi, Cal, do you want to talk about fungi? I guess you need to use an antifungal that it's sensitive to. And generally speaking, you're going to be looking at highly likely to need valve replacement. The timing of that will depend on specialist opinion. And it's very high mortality. Yeah. It's about, um, it, it depends on what the organism is. So there's there's three main culprits, you know, candida, aspergillus, and other. And other is just weird stuff. Uh, usually it's environmentally acquired at the time that a prosthetic valve is going in. But it is also occasionally uh, associated with IV drug use, uh, particularly if the patient is an injector drug user that uh, dissolves their heroin in lemon juice, which has candida in it. Non-candida albicans uh, species can contaminate the lemon juice and then be injected by the user. So you've got reasons for fungal endocarditis. Uh, quite a lot of them are nosocomially acquired, but you know, candida you you can treat it. I think the mortality is about twenty percent, twenty to forty percent. With aspergillus, it's fifty to eighty percent. It's it's terrible. These people need surgery right away. Some people consider it an absolute emergency. And then for other cases of fungal endocarditis, it kind of varies with what it is. So we've had an exophiala endocarditis um, locally uh, recently, and there are, uh, there are other environmental molds and uh, yeasts which can cause endocarditis. But the empirical therapy, is it's a bit difficult really because it, it really does depend on what the organism is. BSAC really makes no hard recommendation and just says that you can use fluconazole or voriconazole or you can use ambosome or you could use caspofungin or angiolofungin. And it kind of depends on what your suspicions are. Uh, the big yeah. clue really is that if you can culture, if you're growing it and it's cellular and it's a yeast, cover candida. And if you aren't culturing anything, but you've got a large vegetation, and you're you know thinking it's a mold cover 
aspergillus and advocate for surgery because the chances are that you won't grow it in the blood. It doesn't grow like that. And with fungal infective endocarditis, the organism is more complicated, but equally the treatment, you know, because fung- fungi are uh, are much more similar in their cells and how they function to, to human cells that your, your treatments are toxic uh, more so than antibacterials are generally. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it can be really challenging to treat with, with toxicity and side effects. But as I've gone through all the different treatments, maybe just at the end, we can talk about some innovations in this field in terms of where the future might lie. So you mentioned OPAT earlier on, I guess it's probably less an innovation now and more just standard of care, but, um, mm-hmm outpatient antibiotic teams so your patient comes they've got a line in and they you choose an antibiotic you can give intravenously once a day and then they get to go home and then they come back in so you avoid the inpatient admission and so you, you can imagine from the drug regimes that we've outlined there you're getting you know there, there's certain ones that will need inpatient but say you're getting keftraxone once a day or you know adaptamycin you can use something like ticoplanin rather than vancomycin use it like a peptide these um these can facilitate the discharge of, of patients any way that we know which patients will and will not be suitable for that yeah you, you sort of need to have kind of faith that the you know opat is right for the patient so if you've got if you're thinking about it in the first two weeks you know the first two weeks when the patient might be receiving gentamicin or certainly the, the beginning of their antimicrobial therapy You've got to have good reasons for the patient being opatable. So they aren't going to get any surgery. And it's because they're well, not because they're too frail for surgery. It's a native valve. The patient's clinically stable. They've not got any complications like heart failure or uh, even septic emboli. If it's an organism that you know that you can treat with with kind of opat-style antibiotics, that would be uh, your... Uh, viridan streptococci or the uh, the bovis group. Beyond that, if the patient is medically stable, then they can be considered for OPAT. You wouldn't want to OPAT anybody who had worsening renal failure, neurological signs, new or concerning echocardiographic features that might indicate that they might deteriorate in the future, stuff like that. Those are the kind of the main criteria for, for OPAT. But Maybe we could avoid OPAT altogether, Callum. Oh. What do you think of that? Well, I think the dogma has been uh, with a lot of complicated bacterial infections, you need IV antibiotics, you need IV antibiotics. Orals won't work. Along comes the Port trial. The Port trial basically looked at a very carefully selected group of patients mm-hmm. with left-sided infective endocarditis they had to have a TOE, transesophageal echo, or TEE, if you're you spell esophagus without the O. They looked at this investigation on patients to make sure they didn't have anything complex, like in the Arctic root abscess or so on. And once they selected patients that didn't have any you know, particular complications, uh, they had an organism and they had sensitivities, they would randomize them to either uh, staying in hospital and getting IV uh, antibiotics or being switched after initial you know, a couple of days of IVs to a a highly uh, orally bioavailable regimen of at least two oral antibiotics. And what they found was that there was 
there's a non-inferiority design trial and they met their their end goal they were looking at a, a 10 percent uh risk difference which is uh, i thought that was quite a quite a big difference to say non-inferiority but actually they found that there was a tendency uh, towards oral therapy having uh less of the primary outcome which was um basically treatment failure there was a couple of different ways they measured that in so very very positive do you have to add to that summary james i could talk about this trial a lot because it's really interesting and i think it's it's really interesting and it sort of makes us think that maybe we've been wasting our time a bit just to be clear about exactly what they were doing so it was left-sided endocarditis as callum says only gram-positive organisms, so staphs, streps, entros. And they had specific regimens that they, they recommended. For each organism, they used two drugs, which were highly bioavailable. Yeah, yeah, that's... And so the, the drugs that they used were amoxicillin, dicloxacillin, which is their version of flucloxacillin, clindamycin, linezolid, moxifloxacin, and rifampicin and fusidic acid. Now, yeah. the, these people did have a few days of IV first, didn't they? I, I, don't, I don't know how long. Was there a mandated minimum, Cal? So both the oral and IV groups had 17 days of treatment prior to randomization. And after that, if you're an IV group, you had a, a median of 19 days therapy further. And the oral group had a median of 17 days. So people were having about 34 days or um, just over four weeks. Yeah. And that's quite a lot of time in hospital. That that sort of that difference of of sixteen days of of being in your own home. So that sixteen day difference is um, yeah, it's not to be sniffed at, you know. Um, no, definitely not. Uh, in terms of cost saving, in terms of benefits to the patient, so maybe there's no difference in mortality outcome. It's hard to do that with a you know clinical trial with only four hundred people in it, though. But you know, certainly no treatment failures, and so this is kind of emboldened uh, some people to say that well maybe after two weeks of IV and in selected groups so your left-sided endocarditis your gram positives you've got high bioavailability antimicrobials that you can use maybe we can send these people home and that's in part what's driven the development of what's called COPAT complex oral uh, patient antibiotic therapy which is where you use your OPAT service to review people who have uh, who are not on IV antibiotics, but you want to keep a close eye on them. You know, maybe you want to check their bloods once every week or two, make sure that they're not deteriorating. Um, uh, these kind of patient, endocarditis patients are just right for that kind of thing. Yep. I think one of the remaining questions is that because it was such a strict research protocol, you know, doing TOEs on every patient is a big ask. So, you know, how do you translate that to routine practice where particularly, I don't know what it's like in other centres, but accessing uh, a TOE in the UK can be challenging. More so now that, that of COVID and the risks of aerosolizing COVID, that people are, are more reluctant to do these procedures. Do you do, you do that? Do you do a TOE and then you can get orals? Like cost-wise, it would be worth it. Um, oh, yeah, could, definitely. You could definitely. do a TOE and save 16 days in hospital. Like, wow, that's a, yeah, definitely do that. But um, you need to build your service to do that. So have you sure. much experience with, with managing? I can't say that I've, in, in certain cases, we've, we've talked about this as an option, but we haven't, I don't think we've really switched to doing it routinely yet. Certainly not routinely. I have done it uh, quite a lot of the time. It's been because my hand has been forced. Uh, so I've had, patients who 
just say, look, I'm not staying in. And this is not just with endocarditis as well. Of course, it's for discitis people. Anybody who has been committed to, you know, a sixth course of antibiotic therapy, some people just balk at the idea of sitting in a hospital bed for six weeks. And, and why wouldn't you, frankly? A lot of the time it's IVDUs that want to leave. And that's interesting because they have right-sided endocarditis, which was not in this trial. They didn't exclude it. They just didn't recruit any cases. But they've got lower bacterial burdens than left-sided endocarditis. And they're almost all staph aureus, which we've got good agents for. So maybe I'm being too conservative Mm. when I'm wanting these people to stay in. The other thing to those concerns about people who inject drugs is that within the 400 people in the trial, only five of them were reported to be people who inject drugs. And actually, mm. in terms of staph aureus, which is the major culprit in them, there only 22% of the patients in the trial had staph aureus, which is a bit in contrast with, with I think, what we see in our clinical practice. So the basic message stands is, you know, if you're treating people with infective endocarditis, then as long as you case select correctly, oral antibiotics are, are safe and effective. But it's how far do you extrapolate that? But I think that's a, just a general trend in infection medicine towards moving from long courses of IV antibiotics to oral antibiotics. Yeah. And maybe my one of our closing questions, James, could be is, um, you know, unfortunate enough to get diagnosed of an infective endocarditis. Would you want the orals? Or do you stick around and get your, say it's staph aureus, get your... You get your four weeks of IVs. Would you take the gent? I don't know. I, I, I'm really unsure about <laughs> these questions. Like, uh, I would take the pills and get out of hospital as quickly as possible because, uh, as I'm sure you could guess, I would be an absolutely awful patient. <laughs> and I think we should leave it there. Yeah, I think I would I would ask for oral treatment, which is it's funny because you, if you look at it from that angle, like what you would want for yourself, but then when you're dealing with a patient, you're maybe more risk adverse. Mm. Uh, questions, comments, suggestions, why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then.